Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I would go back every 30, 60 days and they would, how you doing? It's not working. Okay, well, you were on 10 milligrams. Let's get switch you to 20. Go back another 36 days. How you doing? Okay, well, maybe that's just not for you. Let's put you on these two. Go back another 36 days. Oh, those two aren't working. Well, let's add a third one, you know, because you know, these three together could really help you. Now, mind you, I was not being honest with them. I did not tell them I was drinking alcohol and smoking pot every day. And whenever I could, if somebody had a pain pill, I would take that or mushrooms. I would take some mushrooms here and there. If somebody had them at a party, I always had something in my system during this entire time. And I'm talking from the age of 21, even until now that I'm recovery. I've been on and off medicines for the last 25, 26 years. Nothing has ever worked up until these past 17 months of me <laughs> being sober. And wouldn't you know, they actually work when there's nothing else in your system. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Just a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review. Reviews are podcast currency, and so we... Greatly appreciate your support there anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Tim Lodgen. Tim grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, where he signed a skateboard contract that had him riding with Bucky Lasik and Brandon Novak. Playing sports kept him away from drugs and alcohol until he enlisted in the Marine Corps as a senior in high school. He thought he'd let off some steam before he had to enter the highly regimented life of a soldier. And during that time, he did every drug he could get his hands on. Soon he was then deployed to Somalia, where massive amounts of alcohol took the place of the drugs. When he finally returned home, he was happy to be out of the military, but quickly fell into a deep depression that had him sitting with a gun in his lap, thinking about suicide. He finally admitted his depression and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but without ever admitting to his drug and alcohol use. He spent the next 20 years with incorrect doses that did little for his mental health. Tim then began a career as an MMA fighter. An eventual injury led him to introduce opiates into his use that sent his addiction to another level and caused a second suicide attempt. He finally found help 27 years into his addiction after his wife discovered him preparing to take his own life. He has since become the healthiest version of himself, even coming in third place in a muscle and fitness bodybuilding contest. Tim now uses his platform to help others through telling his story, working with the homeless and offering addiction and health advice through his Instagram account. This was a fantastic episode. Tim has so much to offer the world because as a former Marine, MMA fighter, and all around tough guy, he talks about feelings and shares his feelings with other people and is radically honest and authentic. And I absolutely love it. His story is incredible and one that he has been sharing to help others. I know that his story is going to make a huge difference and that someone out there listening is going to hear Tim talk about feelings and feel permission to share their own. Feel free to contact Tim directly at T. Logen, L-O-D-G-E-N on his Instagram account. So without further ado, I give you Tim Logen. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. All right, Tim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm very humbled to be on. Thank you. Well, I know that you've done a lot of these. So you are seasoned at this and talking about your story. How many times do you think you've you've talked about your story thus far? Today will be, this is my 48th podcast. 48th. Okay. Yeah. In this year. Yes. In this year. That's impressive. That's impressive. What got you wanting to share about your story? It actually started in rehab. 
a gentleman that was you have a you have a couple group of people that go to the same counselor the same morning meeting and we got to be friends and he would just nudge me and be like you told me your story it's awesome he's like share and i'm like i'm not ready i can't do it i can't do it and that went on pretty much the entire time of rehab i was like i'm not sharing in front of 60 strangers like i'm just not doing it and he's like tim i'm telling you man he's like the way that you tell it he's like it's going to impact people he's like just try it just try to share and the last week of rehab when i was there i actually ended up sharing my complete story and a bunch of people came up to me and were like wow i needed to hear that and i was like okay maybe maybe there's something there that's kind of cool so i came home and i did my night i did actually did 98 and 90 and i went to meetings and i shared when they called upon me in the meetings and i just told them i told them the truth i told them everything and people would come up to me at the meetings and say wow you have a strong message you should share more about four months in my sobriety, I started following recovery podcasts and recovery people on Instagram and Facebook. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to share. So one day I literally messaged 25 podcasts and I gave them a little short bio and this is me. This is what I want to do. About four or five of them came back and said, we would like to have you on to share your podcast. And that's how it all started. The one thing that really kept me going is the very first podcast that I did was uh, KDD, Knocking Doors Down with Jason mm -hmm. and Mikey. Four days after I did that podcast, I'm actually sitting in somebody's driveway, picking up a table to take it to Brandon Novak's recovery house in Delaware. I grew up with him. He's a childhood friend. And as I'm sitting there waiting for the guy to open the garage so I can load the table up, I get a phone call. And the guy's like, is this Tim? And I'm like, yeah, how can I help you? Who's this? He said, this is Tony. I served with you in the Marine Corps in 1996. And this is this year, this past year. And I'm like, holy shit, how you doing, man? What's going on? He's like, I'm not doing good. He's like, uh, I've been addicted to pain pills for 18 years. He's like, but I had to call you. He's like, I listened to your podcast four days ago and what you were talking about, hope and not giving up. He's like, I'm four days sober. I never thought I could get sober. He said, but hearing you and, and listening to your story, he goes, I live in Ohio. I just want to thank you for doing that podcast. I was able to link up and, and watch it. He's like, and it really helped me. And now this is six months later and he's got five months and two and a half weeks sober after 18 years. And I was crying when I hung up the phone. I was like, wow, I actually helped somebody. And it was cool that I knew the person that I helped, but how many more people can I help just by sharing my story? The people who think they're alone, nobody knows their pain that they're going through. It's impossible. But the fact that there's so many more of us out there and the more that we share, the more people we can help and less people that we could possibly lose to suicide, mental health or addiction. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. And I love it. And it's true. We just had a person reach out to us who listened to a podcast from several seasons ago and, and one of the episodes and they were like, Hey, can you give me this person's phone number? And I said, sure. You know, he he'll connect with you and same deal. He was like, it helped somebody. This is fantastic. You know, that's the whole point. And people think, you know, oh, it's so scary to share my story and to be vulnerable. And I don't know about you, but I've only had amazing things happen as a result of sharing my story. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it doesn't feed the ego for me, at least. I mean, I, I'm a very, I was a very egotistical person growing up. Look at me, 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 look at me. It's a different feeling. Yeah. It, it, it's like a, a heartfelt feeling that you're actually doing something good for somebody and not expecting anything in return. I've never lived that kind of life until getting sober and living in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. What is your sobriety date? March 5th, 2021. And it's the first time I've ever tried getting sober. I've never tried getting help for so 27 years. I, I ran and, and drank and drugged and never tried getting the help I needed. And I, I needed it this time. I was suicidal and I wanted the pain to stop. You had uh, an experience as a child with your dad leaving and then your brother who was 10 years older, he left and that really had a huge effect on you and much later in life, kind of a, a torturous experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my father left when I was six, six or seven. I was in first grade. So I was in between six and seven and my brother's 10 years older than me. So he's 16, 17. He's a uh, junior in high school. And when my father left as a six and seven year old young boy, Boy, I thought it was because of me. I said, what did I do to make my dad leave? He stayed for my brother and my brother's about to graduate high school and go into the army. Why is he leaving when I'm so young? Could I have been a better kid? Could I have listened more? Could I have cleaned my room more? Could I help them more around the house? Like, what is wrong with me? Why did he leave? I held on for that for 30 
plus years, 35 years, I always thought I was the reason my dad left. You know, he would call my mom and say, he's coming to get me. And I packed my bags and I'd wait at the front door. And then an hour would go by, uh, two hours would go by and my mom would walk around the corner. Your dad's not coming. He had to work or something came up. I cannot tell you how many times that happened. It got to a point where she said, your dad's coming to get you that I wouldn't even pack my bags. So I really thought he didn't love me. He wanted nothing to do with me. He wanted, didn't want me in his life. Come to find out as I got older in my late thirties and I explained that to my mom, she said, son, your dad ran around with me. It had nothing to do with you. You had absolutely nothing to do with our divorce. I couldn't take it anymore. He had girlfriends on the side. I didn't want to live that way. And I used that to drink and drug sometimes because I would be like, I'm worthless. My, my own father didn't want me. I'm going to go get high. I'm going to go drink. I'm going to go have fun because I'm growing up without a dad. Now, one good thing is my mom met my stepfather when I was in fifth grade and they were married for 28 years. So he was with me pretty much my entire childhood, past high school, up into my early thirties. And then they ultimately got a divorce and I haven't seen him in like 10 years, but he showed me a lot of things in life. But there was that, that stepdad, stepson thing. He, um, he wasn't affectionate. Yeah, he would show me cool things. Like I'm a carpenter. He showed me how to be a carpenter. He was like, why pay somebody when you can learn how to do it yourself? He started doing that when I was in 14, I was 14 or 15 years old. We lost at the house. I was like, who's doing it? He's like me, you, and my three brothers. I'm like, what? He's like, I'm going to teach you some stuff. And that actually did help me in my life because I'm a carpenter. And it's because he showed me that stuff. But there was never no love connection like a, like a father and son would have. So I, I did miss out on that. And that did affect me. It absolutely did. How did your mom explain him not coming to pick you up? He actually had a good out. He was a Baltimore City police officer. And she would just simply say, he's got overtime. They called him in. He's got to work night shift. His schedule changed. And that was a complete out. And I knew my dad was a police officer. And that was it. That was the end of the story. He can't come. He's got to work. You didn't get into drugs and alcohol really because you were super into sports. And I know many parents, those of us were like, we're going to get our kids into their passion and then they won't <laughs> drink and use like we did, right? That didn't work in your case. Why do you think that that drive to stay away from those things initially kind of collapsed as you got into the Marine Corps? I think I was searching for who I was because my father wasn't around. I didn't have, I, didn't, I never knew my real grandfather on my father's side. I never knew my mom's father on her side. I grew up with step-granddads. I called them pop and grandpa, but they were not my biological grandfather. So I was always searching, like, where did I come from? You know, what's my family heritage? What did we do? My first high school party in ninth grade, I went and it was the first time I ever tried alcohol. And I drank and I got completely sick. The whole next day, I was throwing up, hanging over the whole deal. And my mom knew I had drank. She's like, I'm not going to punish you because your rest of your day is ruined. She's like, but we're having a cookout and I need 45 or 40 or 50 ears of uh, corn shucked. She's like, you're going to shuck all 50 of these corns a ear. Here's a paper bag for the corn and a paper bag for you to throw up. But she didn't, she, yeah, she didn't punish <laughs> I love me. That. I didn't think about alcohol or anything again. Like I was like, I'm done with that. I'm never doing that again. Well, senior year rolled around and my grades was not getting into college. If you weren't in sports, then you were doing drugs in my school. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going in the Marines. I'm going in the military. My dad was in the army. My grandfather was in the army. My brother was in the army. Everybody, all the men in my family were in the military of some sort. I was like, I'm going in the Marines. Senior year comes. I'm like, man, I'm going away at the end of school. I might as well go to some parties and start having some fun and, and you know, getting it out of my system because, you know, it's going to get real serious when I get into the military. Started going to parties. As soon as I started going to parties, I started drinking, which I remember not liking it in the beginning, but I think I was just drinking because I was at parties. There was girls there and we were having fun. As soon as I started drinking, I started smelling pot and I was like, oh, I'll try some of that. Oh, wait, what's that? LSD? Sure, I'll, I'll try that. What's that? Oh, PCP? Sure, give me some of that. You got some pain pills too? Give me some of that. But it all stemmed from drinking that alcohol because as soon as I drank alcohol, I was like, what else is here? Because I'm ready to go. Let's try it. As soon as that started, I stopped all athletics. It completely took over my life. Now, for me at that time, I thought it was a phase because here I am. I'm going away in the military in a couple of months. Let me have fun. When I got into the military, the drugs did stop. I mean, they had to. I was getting tested. I was in the military. But the alcoholism skyrocketed. As soon as I graduated boot camp and I got stationed at North Camp Lejeune, as soon as we got off and had our leave at 4 p.m., we were at the bars. The strip clubs, the bars. And at 18, 19, or 20 years old, the bars around the bases, 
Their motto was, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So they had zero problems serving us, even though we were underage. We just couldn't stand there with the beer in our hand in case the authorities walked in. So we could take a drink or a shot and sit down on the table, play pool or whatever, and then go back to our drink. And we would see our sergeants at the same bars. And these are late 20, early 30-year-old men. And the only thing they would say to us is just make sure you're up at 3.30, 4 o'clock and be online because we're going running. We got calisthenics. We got this to do. We don't care what you guys are doing. Just as long as you're up in formation at 3.30, we kind of got a pass. We're like, okay, this is this is expected. You know, we, we train hard. We party hard. And that's what the Marines were about. And we fully took advantage of it every single time that we could. How many people... And again, I know you're, I know this is like a trick question because you're guessing. How many people do you think were there, had joined the Marines to run away from something versus the people who joined the Marines because they really wanted to be in the Marines? This was the life they wanted. I'm going to say more people joined to run away than the people that really actually wanted to join the Marines. Out of my platoon, when we first started boot camp, we had 187 recruits in our platoon. We graduated with 80. So a hundred of those people failed out or quit and left before boot camp was even over. After that first year, I'm going to say about 30 of those 81 got out from some medical discharge, their ankle, their knee, their back, their shoulder. They found some other way out to get out of the military. Out of my actually graduating platoon, out of the 81, only two of us made it a life decision and actually retired after 22 years. So two out of 81 and about 50 of us actually stayed in for the full term of, you know, three to four years or whatever we signed up at that time. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's, that's pretty bad <laughs> or good. I don't know. You get rid of the people who don't really want to be there. And that's it. And the Marines is no joke. It's not, not putting down any other military, but when you join the Marines, you're considered the best of the best. You go in first when there's trouble, they call the Marines in first. How many people, so I saw people tell their kids or convince their kids to go into the military so that they could stop using. Did you see that at all? I saw people in the Marines once we got out of boot camp doing drugs. We, we would have uh, random drug tests. And I do remember this one time, there was like 300, they tested like three platoons. It was about 300 and some. If I'm correct, I think like 70 people came back, tested positive for cocaine. <laughs> It was like 20 or 30 people came back from marijuana. all 70 of us, right? Yeah, for like <laughs> marijuana. Some people came back from marijuana. But I do remember the cocaine because I was like, are you kidding me? Like 70 of you? Like we're doing cocaine. If I'm not mistaken, it's only stays in your system for a couple of days. So I'm thinking these guys are like, oh, I could do it on Friday. I'll be good by Monday. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a random drug test. No, you're going, you're, you got caught. I think it's it, an interesting thing to hear about, like who joins the military, why they join the military, how long, you know, all those things, because it's one of those places where I think a lot of people, it's a perfect example of wherever you go, there you are, that you can't run away from yourself, no matter how much you train, no matter how, you know, how, how well you can get, you know, people like, well, I can still get up at 4am. I can still perform. I can still save these people. I can still go out on a mission. Like, there are all these things that convince us, I can't be an alcoholic or a drug addict, whatever you want to call it. I can't be mentally ill. I can't be X, Y, Z because I'm elite in this category because I'm, I can do this. I can do an ultra. I can do an Ironman. Like I can't, it's not possible to be these two things when in fact it is very possible to be multiple different things. And alcoholism is this weird void in the middle where you can be in control in all these other areas and then this one area, you're just a hot mess express. Yes, absolutely. And they teach you to hide your feelings. They teach you to suppress your emotions. You're supposed to be a pretty much robot. Do as I say, don't ask anything. If I tell you to jump, you don't look at what you're going to land in. You jump and then you figure out how you're going to land. You do what we say when we say to do it. Pretty much F your feelings, put them aside because you're a warrior. You're trained to war. You're trained to kill. That's it. Period. Done. What about debriefs? Did you, did they do anything in debriefs to kind of help work through that? So when I got out in 95, the end of 95, almost 96, I did six months in our unit did six months in Somalia, Operation United Shield. Now this was after Black Hawk Down happened. The war pretty much was over. We were there as a peacekeeping mission. I didn't actually physically have to shoot anybody or nobody shot at me, but I saw the ramifications of war. I saw what it did to people. I saw the buildings. I saw the bodies. I, I saw ravaged villages. And, and it was horrible. When I got out, P 
PTSD in 95, 96 was not a thing. It was not something they talked about. You would go through a psychological debrief. How are you feeling? Uh, do you think you're going to hurt yourself? Or are you going to hurt somebody else? How are you going to adapt to civilian life? What is your plans when you get out? I luckily had like a year, a year and a half of Montgomery Jive Bill. I was like, I'm going to go to college. I'm moving back in with my mom. You know, I'll get a part-time job. You know, and that's what my plan was. And they get, they discharge you and send you on your way. Oh, here's the, here's your local VA. You can go down and talk to a psychologist or psychiatrist if you're not feeling right. And that was it in 95. You know, they, they didn't follow up with you. There was nobody calling and checking up on you. If you didn't take it upon yourself to go sign into the VA in your state, wherever you lived, they had no more record of you. You were discharged from the military and you were on your own. That was it. The first week or two was fine because you're like, okay, I'm out of this situation. I don't have to worry about anything going on. You get sleep. You can eat, you know, you can shower, you can actually start, but it's not the week or two after, it's the month after. Something is not going on now. And, and you're kind of like, well, now what? I remember like watching people walk on grass and that pissed me off. I'm like, you're not supposed to walk on grass. That's why I have sidewalks here. You're not supposed to walk and chew gum. That's disgusting. You're not supposed to hold anything in your right hand. If you're walking and you have a cup or something, it's supposed to be in your left hand so you can salute with your right hand. You know, if you're, if, you, if you're with your loved one, you're supposed to hold their left hand so your right hand's always free to salute an officer. Standing in lines at the grocery store, just how people would stand with their hip out or, or like, you know, chewing. I'm like, man, these people have no like respect for anything. Like it mentally got to me because I was like, man, I hate everybody. Why are people so disgusting? When they weren't disgusting, I was just so used to everything being spot on, correct and, and checked and locked and loaded, ready to go and nothing out of place. And then you come back to reality and people are just la 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 la. And I wasn't used to that. I'm not even going to lie. I'm, I'm 46 now. And it still bothers me when people walk on grass. <laughs> <laughs> all the things i'm like why are you walking on grass there's a, there's a sidewalk right there it's so disrespectful what you get taught when you go to the military is respect right like yes. there's a deep level of discipline and respect that are taught and they're both a necessity and and a also helpful thing to have to make you a cut above the rest right it's you know it makes you cut above the rest but it's also really helpful to have to organize a military how does that fit into the respect because like let me just tell you two things i didn't have when i was loaded i mean even drinking just like even my alcoholism is respect and discipline um, <laughs> <laughs> how do those two things how did they like work inside you when it came to your using, when it, whether it was your alcoholism in the military or addiction after the fact. I was, I looked down upon people who did heroin and <laughs> cocaine okay. and, and like, to me, that was the hard drugs. Like, how could you do that? It's I'm over disrespectful here. or is it, it's not disciplined? Not, not, how could you get that bad in your addiction okay. where you're, it's you're that, you're, how, how are you that low? I'm only over here drinking a 12 pack and smoking weed and taking pain pills. You're injecting something into your arm or, or you're sniffing something that could possibly make your heart explode. Like, that's what I'm thinking. You yep. know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a differentiator like you're still in your mind you're still i guess the picture i'm painting is you get taught this ultimate respect and discipline and then how it applies to addiction is in your mind you have to separate yourself from these other people otherwise that whole mentality doesn't work and so for you the undisciplined and the disrespect of your body or however you want to call it it, it was just the a, the lower level in your mind of addiction so like you just created a bubble for yourself of like well it's pain pills it's not heroin I think it's important for us to talk about what it looked like when you were at the end, right? Because we're still in a, like, <laughs> at least as far as I'm concerned, a decent, a, a much more mainstream or a, but, a bit above mainstream view of you, which is pills and marijuana and whatever. But that's not, I mean, your wife walked in with you in you standing on a bucket with a, a rope around your neck. So that's where this I'm better than discipline, respect, and creating this bubble for yourself got you. It didn't work. How did you go from like those people to I'm just, I just want to die? So it, it started... I actually tried to commit suicide once before my wife found me. I had to get five surgeries within like a year and a half. And they were major surgeries. Like my rotator cuff, I had two hernias, two neck surgeries. And then um, I had compartment syndrome in my arm and I had to have major reconstructive in my arm. From MMA? Yes. 
Yeah. So my last fight, I tore my rotator cuff and that was like a nine month rehab. And that started me on pain pills. And we're talking 10 years ago, I was 35, 36. It wasn't like it is now. They didn't regulate like they do now. They were just like, oh, it still hurts. Well, that's up the dosage. Oh, well, the Percocets aren't working. They may mess your stomach up. They give you hydrocodone. Go back in 30 days. The hydrocodones aren't doing what the Percocets did. My stomach's not messed up, but they don't give me that kick the Percocets did. I got it. We'll just give you oxys. And then we'll up the dosage to 20 milligrams. You should be good from there. And as that went on, I was just working normal as a carpenter. And my wrist hurt that day. I was like, man, this doesn't feel right. Maybe I overworked at holding a drill or something. Woke up at three o'clock in the morning in excruciating pain. And I turned the light on and went like that. My arm was twice the size of my left arm and it was purple. And I tapped my wife on the shoulder. I was like, something's wrong. We got to go to the hospital. And she said, oh my God, we're at the hospital. Luckily, we're like 15 minutes from the hospital. We got there and he walks in and he's like, we have 15 minutes to save your arm. And I'm like, what's going on? He said, your arm's trying to expand and it's cutting off all the circulation to your arm. And if we don't cut you open and let your muscles hang out to relieve the pressure, you're going to lose your arm from your elbow down. Why did your arm do that? And why was your arm trying to expand? I tore all the ligaments and tendons in my arm without knowing, I guess, from overuse, training, working, holding drills and, and saws. And I just overworked it. After that last surgery, they didn't have, you know, once you got done surgery, you didn't go back to the surgeon anymore. You went to a pain pain clinic and you go to the pain clinic and it was once a month you had to go and pee in a cup make sure you weren't doing any drugs i was doing marijuana but they didn't care about that they were looking for harder drugs or whatever it would never be like we're going to take you down is that working for you it's working great okay here's another refill that's it it wasn't oh well let's take you down to 10 let's take you down to five on top of this i was drinking a 12 pack of beer a day and like every good addict i wasn't taking one every four hours i was taking two to three to four and i was getting done my script two weeks early before my next refill and having to go out and ask my buddies to hook me up or hold me over or come up with an excuse i got out of my truck and it fell on the concrete and I stepped on them or I knocked them into the toilet and I, and I flushed them by axe. I need a new refill. So I get to the point one day and I'm sitting in my bed and I'm, I'm scared. I'm literally scared. I'm like, this is how people die. I'm taking like 10 to 15, 20 milligram oxys a day and drinking 12 pack of beer. I'm going to freaking die in my sleep one night. And I'm like, you know what? That's not going to happen. I'm going to do it. If I'm going to die, I'm going to do it. And I reached up on the pill bottle that I had in my bedroom and I had 18 left in the bottle and I took all 18 of them and I drank a 12 pack of beer in like three hours. And I remember laying in the bed and the last thing I remember saying is, please don't let me wake up because I can't stop and I want the pain to go away. I woke up the next morning. I woke up the next morning and I immediately go into the bathroom where my full refill is sitting of 30. I open up the bottle and I dumped all 30 of them down the toilet and I looked in the mirror and I remember telling myself, I don't care how bad this gets. I'm never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days, I was the sickest I think I've probably ever been in my life. Throwing up nausea, insomnia, the shakes, the jitters, racing thoughts, couldn't eat, sweats, the whole deal. But every morning when I would wake up, I'd be like, I'm not doing this again. Remember this feeling. And I remember looking in my eyes in between the tears and the throwing up and, and the sweats and remember saying, remember how this feels. I don't ever want to go through this again. So after those 10 days goes by, I'm out of work at this time. By this point, I have gone through like 38 jobs, 40 jobs since being out of the Marine Corps. I've had 46 employments since being out of the Marine Corps at 20 years old. And it's all due to my mental illness and, and addiction. And I'm sitting at home. I'm like, man, I'm going to go for a ride. I'm going to get my truck to go for a ride. So I get my truck and I go down to this reservoir, which is really beautiful down here. People go hiking and picnicking and fishing and boating. Yeah, it's um, it's called Lock Raven Reservoir. There's a big dam and it's really beautiful. People go there all the time and go hiking and, and it's really beautiful. And I'm driving through it and I'm crying and I'm, I'm like, why am I an addict? Why can't I stop drinking? You know, why have I lost so many jobs? Why, why is me and my wife fighting? Why don't I get along with my kids? Why have I shit on every single thing in my life? And I get around to this bend and there's a tree there where my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his car and hit the tree and lost his life at the age of 18. So on the trees on Memorial, they have a picture of him and they have a book there still to this day. You can write little notes to him and, and put flowers there. And I get out and I go up to the tree and I'm crying. I'm like, Bill, man, I, 
I'm lost. I don't know why I'm here. I, I don't know what, what's next for me. I just need a sign that I'm not alone. I need to know that there's something else out there because I'm lost and, and I don't know what to do and I can't stop drinking. And I get back in my truck and I go to leave and I'm crying. I can barely drive. And instead of pulling over on the right-hand side, I pull over on the left-hand side where traffic's coming this way. And about 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up and we're, we're nose to nose because I'm on the wrong side of traffic. And I'm watching this guy get out and he opens his back door and he gets his dog out. He's about to walk across where the water is. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, holy shit. And I get out of my truck and I'm like, Mr. Bill, it was my best friend who had died in 1996. It was his father. I hadn't seen him since 1996. This is March 16, 2017. So 21 years later. And I'm like, Mr. Bill. And he's like, Timmy, he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I can't, I can't stop. I've lost many jobs. Me and my wife are fighting. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks at me and he says, Tim, I'm not even supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach on a family reunion trip. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come walk the dog this morning at 10 a.m. That's the only reason I'm here. And I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to show me a sign that I wasn't alone, that something was there. And he looked at me, he goes, I think I was here to see you. And we hugged. And for about 10 minutes, I thought everything was going to be okay. Yeah, I, I get in my truck and I'm driving and my addictive personality kicks in and says, well, you don't have to stop drinking. You're being watched now. Nothing's going to happen to you. There's a purpose for you. So for the next four years, my drinking got out of control. The 12 beers a day sometimes went to 18. Then that wasn't enough. The regular beers weren't doing it. I switched to IPAs and lagers, the 10, 11, 12% beers, still drinking 12 of those, which is like 24 of regular beers. But I was still missing something. I was never big on liquor, but I was like, you know what? I'm going I'm to grab some of these little uh, fireball miniatures. I'm going to try these out. Take one or two of them. I got that warm blanket feeling that the pain pills gave me almost instantly. That hot feeling goes down, your chest warms up. And I was like, this is it. This this is what I've been missing. I'm good now. Well, after doing that for about a year or two, I was noticing I was getting kind of fat. My face was getting big. My skin was turning red. I was like, well, I don't, I don't like the way this looks, you know? So how about I just just switch to the whiskey instead, just leave the beer alone because, you know, that's that's a good plan. I, I would stop in the morning at the liquor store and get a sleeve of Fireball whiskey, which is 10 miniatures in a pack. Question. That, yeah. Why didn't you buy a bottle? My addictive personality yeah. told me not to buy a big bottle because then I would know exactly how much liquor I was drinking. Okay. Okay. I could get the little bottles and drink them and throw them away and forget how much liquor I was drinking throughout the day. And it would justify me to go get more because I would, wouldn't remember how much I've already had. Okay. All right. But if I drank a big bottle and I drank all of it, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. I drank all that today. <laughs> It would bring everything to reality. Right, right, right. Okay. The little, okay, the I little follow, ones, I, 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 could put, I could put in my pockets, throw them out the window as I'm driving, hide them all over the house, you know, forget where I hit, forget where I hit them. In the morning, I'd stop and I'd get 10 of them. I'd finish all 10 of them by one o'clock. I'd finish my day at work, get off at 3.30 and immediately go to the liquor store and get 10 more. I would drink all 10 of them before eight or nine o'clock at night. So I was drinking 20 miniatures a day after I stopped drinking the beer. One day I took the miniature out and I put it in the shot glass. One miniature is two and a half shots. So two and a half times 20, I was drinking, that was almost 50 shots at that point. I had just gotten my, a brand new truck and I was like, I'm going to the liquor store. I'll be back, go to the liquor store, get my sleeve, coming home. And I hit something. I still don't know what I hit. I don't know if it was a parked car, a, a sign, a wall. I have zero clue to this day what I hit. But I come home and I open the door and be like, I'm going to bed. I, I hit something. I'm going to bed. And I go to bed. Well, like every great alcoholic, I wake up the next morning. Good morning. I'm going to go get some milk and water. Do you need anything from the grocery store? And my wife looks at me and she's like, uh, how are you going to do that? I'm like, in my brand new truck in the driveway. She's like, Tim, go outside and look at your truck. So I go outside, my right front passenger tires hanging off the rim. My side mirror is completely missing. And I'm sitting here looking at it. And I'm like, what the hell did I do? And she pops her head out the front door. And she's like, Tim, you don't have no idea what you hit, do you? And I said, I, I don't. She said, you could have killed yourself or killed somebody last night. You can't stay here anymore. This is out of control. I don't want you here. You got you to gotta leave and go figure this out. When you figure it out, you can come back. But I don't want you here anymore. I can't, I can't deal with this. So I call AAA. They come. They, they put my spare tire on for me. I said, screw the side of your mirror. I don't need it. I'm good. <laughs> call, I call my buddy. And I'm, I'm like, hey, man, I just got kicked out of my house. Is there any way I can come to your house? You know, for a couple of days, let things blow over. 
And, and my wife will let me back in a couple of days, just let her cool off. And he's like, sure, man, come on over. So I get to his house and uh, he's like, well, your wife kicked you out. I'm like, yeah. He's like, they might also go to the fucking bar. I'm like, you know what? Now I have a reason to go. My wife just kicked me out. You know, I'm in the dumps. Yeah, let's go to the bar. So we go to the bar. This is less than 24 hours. And as I'm leaving the bar, I rear end somebody at a red light. I'm, I'm trashed. I mean, we were doing shots, drinking. And I get out and I'm looking at it. And the guy had a tow hitch on the back of his truck. So his truck was actually completely fine. But now my front bumper's all beat in. So I get out and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. I was like, your truck's okay. You're okay. I slapped him on his back. I got my truck and I took off. I knew if the cops came, my truck was getting impounded. I was going to jail for drunk driving. So I took off and I go to my buddy's house and I get there and I'm like, man, I, I got to go. I, I can't stay here. He's like, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I just got to be alone. I, I got to go think about what's going on. So I leave his house. Stop at the liquor store, get 10 more miniatures, and I go sit at a local park and ride where people park their cars and go get on the train for work. And I turn my phone off and I sit there for 48 hours just listening to sad ass music, doing the whole woe is me. I'm a uh -huh. piece of shit. Uh -huh. you know, my, my, my kids, my kids deserve better than me. My wife should have left me years ago. My mom deserves a better son. Why am I still here? Why haven't I accomplished anything? Just completely coming down on me, like on every angle after 48 hours, I turn my phone on March 5th, 2021 at seven after 10, two minutes goes by. And at nine after 10, the phone rings and I didn't recognize the number. It, it said, um, Westchester, Pennsylvania. So I pick it up on my hello and it's Brandon Novak. And he's like, lodging, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm tired. And I'm drunk. I'm in my truck. And he says, good motherfucker. That's what you need. Mm -hmm. He's like, I got a plane ticket set for you this evening. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida. You're going to go get help. And I promise you, if you get on that plane this, this evening, everything that you've lost, you'll get back times 10. Just do me a favor. Call me when you pass security because I want to make sure you're not going to get dropped off at the airport and you're going to catch a cab and leave. I want to make sure you get on the plane. I'm like, okay. Okay. So I hang up the phone. Maybe 10 minutes goes by and my wife calls. She's like, hey, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Can you please come home, take a shower, pack, try to eat something and take a nap? I had about four or five hours for the plane last. She's like, just get things ready. I'm like, okay. So I go home, take a shower. I couldn't eat. I've been drinking for 48 hours. Now my panic and my anxiety are through the roof. My mind's racing. I'm like, holy shit, I got to go to rehab. How long am I going for? 30, 60, 90 days, six months? I have no idea. It's in, it's in Florida. I'm going to be down all the way at the bottom of the United States. You know, I, I'm going to be so far away from my family. And my addictive personality kicks in and grabs me by the hand and walks me to the basement of my home and throws a rope around my neck and stands me up on the bucket and tells me, you can't do it. Just end the pain. Just end the pain. I listen. I go into my basement. I, I put a rope around my neck and I start standing. I stand up on this bucket. I'm crying. And my wife realizes I'm not in my bedroom anymore. And she comes down the steps and she sees me in the corner of our basement in the dark, standing on a bucket with a rope around my neck, crying hysterically. And she says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't do it. I, I, I can't. I, I just want the pain to stop. And I don't know how. And she says, Tim, do you know what this would do to your girls? Please, please get down. Please get down. Everything's going to be all right. Just get on that plane. Everything is going to be all right. And about a minute goes by and I, and I get down and I fall to the floor and I'm crying for like 10, 15 minutes. A couple hours go by. My mom picks me up. She drives me to the airport and I get past security and I call him. I'm like, hey, Brandon, I'm past security. I got about 30, 35 minutes to be aboard the plane. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything you've ever lost times 10. And he just simply hangs up. As I go to sit in the seat for them, waiting for them to call me to board the plane, as I sit down, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that came over my entire body. It was the warm blanket feeling that I got from drugs and alcohol. My whole body got hot. My worry went away, my depression, my anxiety, my fear, and this voice that I've never heard before in my life in a calming manner says, everything's going to be all right. And it was at that time at 44 years old that I finally realized that I was going to get the help I needed to save my life. That feeling is something that I will never take for granted. When I got to rehab, I went addictive mode into rehab. I went to all seven meetings a day. I signed up for extra meetings for military and first responders and veterans. I volunteered on the weekends. I journaled. I raised my hands. I participated. I had to experience the dark, deep depths of hell 
to be so grateful for what my future is bringing me and not to take it for granted, to be thankful for everything that I've been given. First thinking about it, I was like, why me? If there's a God, why am I suffering? Why do I have addiction? Why do I have bipolar disorder? Why, why are all these things bad happening to me? It's because he had bigger plans. There's something better for me. That keeps me grounded. And I never had faith before. And I believe without faith, you're truly lost. And now I believe in something other than myself. And I believe I have a purpose now. And, I, and I'm pretty sure it's to share with as many people as possible that are suffering with mental illness and addictions in hopes that they know that they can recover. There's help out there and they can live the life that they've always wanted to live. Did you get diagnosed with bipolar at Banyan at the treatment center? No, I actually got diagnosed when I got out of the Marine Corps. The first month when I got out was great. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to go before o'clock in the morning anymore. The second month was, oh shit, I got to either sign up for college and get a job. I got to start helping, you know, pay some bills around my mom's house because she let me move back into the house. The third month came and I got severely, severely depressed. I felt like a loser. My, my mind was telling me I'm a loser. And I go into my stepfather's armoire and I grab his gun and I sit it on my lap and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm contemplating using it. And I call my girlfriend at the time and I told her what's going on. She comes over and takes it from me and puts it in my stepfather's armoire. When my mom came home, I told her I was severely depressed. I didn't tell her I had, to, I just had my stepdad's gun on my lap. She would have freaked out, had me committed, the whole deal. But what she did do is she made some appointments with the doctors to see exactly what was going on. So I go to the doctors and they run a whole bunch of tests on me. And uh, they're like, you have bipolar one disorder, manic depressant. And, and how uh, did they describe the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two? The bipolar one and bipolar two. Bipolar one is when you have a manic, you're more manic for longer or you're more depressed for longer. Right. The one and the two, you could shorter be manic. Cycles. Shorter cycles, exactly. So, which made sense to me because when I was in the Marines, there was no depression mode. I was manic for two and a half, almost three years. I was on the go, 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 go. So it made sense that on that 90, almost 90 days of me coming home, everything flushed out of my body. And now I'm like, oh my God, I'm not that high anymore. I'm not, I'm not on. Like, like, I guess when an actor would be on and he's in front of the camera, there was nobody to be that with. So they ran a bunch of tests about being bipolar. They put no medicines, but I never indulged to them that I was drinking every day and smoking pot. So when I would go back every 30, 60 days, how's the medicines doing? They're not working. Oh, well, maybe we got the dosage wrong. Let's up the dosage. Go okay, back. Wait. Another... We're going to stop yep. here for one second. We're going to stop yep. here for one second because this is so important. This is so important. If you have a loved one who is diagnosed as bipolar, major depression, or any other major psychiatric mental illness, and they are still drinking and using, you cannot assume that anything, any of the meds or therapies or any of those things are going to work the way they're supposed to if that person is still using other mind-altering substances. And furthermore, it's very hard to diagnose accurately a mental illness if someone is drinking and using. Okay, sorry. Had to like drop that because it's a perfect place. No, that, that's absolutely perfect. And what I'm about to explain is exactly that. So I would go back every 30, 60 days and they would, how you doing? It's not working. Okay, well, you were on 10 milligrams. Let's, let's switch you to 20. Go back another 36 days. How you doing? Okay, well, maybe that's just not for you. Let's put you on these two. Go back another 36 days. Oh, those two aren't working. Well, let's add a third one, you know, because you know, these three together could really help you. Now, mind you, I was not being honest with them. I did not tell them I was drinking alcohol and smoking pot every day. And whenever I could, if somebody had a pain pill, I would take that or mushrooms. I would take some mushrooms here and there. If somebody had them at a party, I always had something in my system during this entire time. And I'm talking from the age of 21, even until now that I'm recovery. I've been on and off medicines for the last 25, 26 years. Nothing has ever worked up until these past 17 months of me <laughs> being sober. And wouldn't you know, they actually work when there's nothing else in your system. And I was never honest with them. I never told them. So they would just, I couldn't tell you how many medicines I've been on. Probably 30, 30 some. Yep, at, one, at one point, they had me on Lexapro, Lorazepam, and 1,800 milligrams of lithium a day. I was like a freaking walking zombie. Oh my God. My wife looked at me one day and she's like, 
you don't smile, you don't cry, you don't smirk. She's like, it's like I'm talking to a walking dead person. She's like, what do they have you on? And the doctor at that time actually made a mistake. The razapan that he had me on, I was only supposed to be on four milligrams for the entire day. Well, on the bottle was take four, four milligram tablets per day. So I was doing 16 milligrams on top of the 1800 milligrams of uh, lithium. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's a big mistake. And Lexapro. Yeah. I actually passed out one night at my house and my poor five-year-old daughter walks in and couldn't wake me up. She got on the phone to call my mother and father-in-law and said, I can't wake daddy up. I can't wake daddy up. And my mother and father-in-law came over to my house and they were shaking me. And I think my mother ended up slapping me in the face to wake me up. And I woke up and I had to go to the hospital. And they were like, what are you on? You can't take this. Like, we're not even supposed to be on 1800 milligrams of lithium. Like, this is way too much. At that point, I had lost all faith in the medicines. Mm-hmm. And I told myself, well, I don't need them because they obviously don't know what the hell they're doing. It's been 15 years, 20 years at this point. It's not working. So why in the hell am I even taking them? And I would go through my cycles. There was never no happy medium. I'm either 100 miles an hour or I'm zero. There was no normal emotional track that I would be on. Like, Because everybody goes up and everybody comes down. But when I went up, I'd clean the house for two or three days, cut the grass. I'd paint shit. Like I would just go, go, go. And then when I was down, I wouldn't get out of bed. I call out of work or I just quit the job because I didn't feel like going and dealing with it. You know, extremes. You want to hear something funny about like mental illness? You're talking about like my addict. Well, like my mental illness, because I have major depressive disorder, I don't have any ups. And so I'd be like, why can't I be bipolar at least where there's ups and, you know, like, like, like wishing. Because <laughs> people talk about mania and I was like, so that's not good. Or they're just trying to like, come on, Ash, off the floor, you know, just bringing me down. I was like, why can't I be bipolar? I'm not going to lie. Growing up like that, I kind of like the ups. It literally helped me excel at sports. I would train harder and longer than everybody else. I wouldn't stop. They'd have to pull me off the field. They'd have to stop me from training. Like, And I just thought my mom was just like, you're just a very emotional kid who's in touch with his feelings. When you want something, you go at it. My oldest daughter, she's an exceptional artist. She went to art school. She does nails, hair. She makes tattoo flash. She sells them. Like She's an exceptional artist, but she has bipolar disorder too. And she struggled with a little bit of alcoholism for about a year. When I first got home from rehab, my daughter was living upstairs with us, with my grandson. I have a three-year-old grandson. She would walk in the house and just go straight up the steps. Here I am. I'm 32 days coming out of rehab. I'm like, Life is different. I'm like yeah, right. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, a different I'm man. Like, I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, why is she talking to me? She's like, Tim, you drank for 27 years. She's 23. She saw the best and worst of her father. Just give her time. And I'm like, but I just did, you know, a month, a month, 32 days of rehab. Two months goes by, three months goes by, four months goes by. Still nothing. Still nothing. Finally, nine months has gone by. I'm going to meetings. I got a sponsor. I'm working recovery. I've done two or three podcasts at that time. And I get this message. And it's simply, Dad, I just want to tell you how proud I am of you. I love you. Thank you for letting me heal because I know you were healing too. But I needed the time to heal. And I just really want you to know how truly proud I am to have my father back. That was one of the biggest, if not the biggest gift I've gotten back from sobriety. No amount of money, nothing could replace that feeling of pride that my daughter actually felt for her father again after not speaking to me. After being scared of me walking in the front door to my own home. My kids were scared of me. My middle daughter, who's 14, and my youngest, who's 11, they bounce back pretty easily. I have a relationship with my kids now. We eat dinner. We watch movies. We play. We go to the pool. Like It's normal father-daughter relationship now that I didn't have before. Recovery has given me more than I ever could imagine. It's given me... It, my friend lied. It didn't give me back 10 times. It's given me back 100, and it gives me something back every single day. Just how I look at things, my perspective of how I look at things now. I had somebody at the gym a couple months ago say, man, I had a shitty day. I had to go to work. I got to drag my ass here to the gym. I got to go home and cook dinner. And I said, change one word in that sentence. He's like, what do you mean? I said, you got to go to work this morning. You get to come to the gym and you get to go home and cook your family dinner. And he just looked at me. I was like, some people don't have a job. Some people are not physically able to come and exercise. And some people don't have a family to go home and cook to. He kind of just didn't say nothing and walked away. And I could see five, 10 minutes goes by. I could see him thinking. I just look at things so much differently now. I heard the saying in Overeaters Anonymous, they say, your weight is somebody's goal weight. And I 
I like to apply that to like your current weight that you hate is somebody else's goal weight. And I like to apply that to life, which is like your life that you're lamenting over, your problems that you're lamenting over, those bills or whatever, those ability to... Those are someone's life goals, your pain in the ass kids at home or your whatever it is, like whatever the things are that were the quality luxury problems we have in recovery are someone else's goals. And we forget that because we get so used to the new things that we have. It's funny because when you first get sober, like, man, this is some people say, this is boring. This is what sobriety is. This isn't boring. This is, this is life. Like, well, it's calm. That's what it is. It's calm. There's not a bunch of hectic shit going on and you're not going a hundred miles an hour with your mm-hmm. head cut off. When I, when I was drinking a drug and I was like, man, I hate a regimented day. I hate having to do the same thing over and over. I want to do what I want to do. Then you realize when you're getting sober, you did the same thing every single day over and over again for hours and hours and hours. We're looking for structure, but the structure that we want. I love getting up and going to work. I love coming home, showering, and going immediately to the gym for two, two and a half hours. That's my thing. I come home, we eat dinner as a family, and then I have an hour before I go to bed and I do it again. And I love it. Like my day's full. I don't have any downtime except for at the end of the evening where you're supposed to have a little downtime before you get ready to go to bed. You're calming down before you go to bed. And I learned that kind of in rehab. You know, you put in the work all day long. You know, you go to your classes, you listen to your counselors, you listen to outside speaker, and then you, you have that hour, hour and a half before lights out to calm you and reset you and get you ready for the next day. And I look forward to that every single day. I will say that I think I'm, I have turned my addiction into the gym now. Could be a little unhealthy sometimes. So you got a lot of time to find all the other ones that are coming for you because they're all yeah. coming. They just yeah, come. I, they, I every, know. every few years, they just come at you and you're like, oh, so this great thing that is great, I may have turned it into a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Look, that's the first one you want to have anyway. The other options are not as good. No, and I will say, you know, working out and exercising really helps me mentally. Yes. It really does. I'm just, I'm taking it to another level. I'm, I want to do a bodybuilding show in November. Yeah. I just, I just got third place in the Muscle and Fitness Magazine competition. Congratulations. Um, out of 10,000 people, I got third place. Wow. Now, I was sad for two days. First place is a two-page spread. You go on the cover of the magazine, you get $25,000. You know, And who knows what would happen? Doors would have opened up. Like My life probably would have changed. And I'm sad. My mom calls me and she's like, what's going on? I was like, I, I didn't win. She's like, you did win, son. Now, the thing you've been through. She's like, I am so proud of you. She's like, you got in third place. She's like, you won. She's like, you won in my heart, son. She's like, be proud of yourself. She's like, pat yourself on the back. She's like, you've came a long way. Let's get them next year. She's like, but don't beat yourself up. She said, because you know how many people would want to be in third place. And it really hit me. It really hit me. And for a day I did, I was, man, I didn't win. I didn't win. But the tools that I've learned in recovery, the exercises that I learned in rehab, what my sponsor told me, I started replaying them in my head. You know what I mean? And not allowing that to pull me down. Gratitude was what pulled me back out. And gratitude, again, is what saved me after what my mom said to me. Community support and your family's part of that community support is part of what saves you because you taught, you answered a phone call from your mom using community to talk about your feelings. Because had you just said everything is fine, you said, oh, I didn't win. And she knew as part of your community and your support to tell you truth. And because you were honest, she was honest and you got to have that. And that's an important thing is about the experience is that you didn't pretend to be grateful for third. If you had pretended to be grateful for third, people can't support you. They don't know to support you. But because you were honest and authentic, you were able to get what you needed to get into the gratitude. And I've noticed by being truthful and not suppressing your feelings and just coming out and saying how you feel, the reciprocation that you get back is often not what you think is going to be. It's going to be helpful and beneficial to you. So if you if you're thinking that you shouldn't say something or if you're feeling you're you're ashamed, say it. Say your feelings. You would be amazed of what comes back to you and how much it could help you. Don't feel as if, you know, nobody could possibly understand how you're feeling because believe it or not, the people that smile the most are the ones that are hurting the most. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. I don't I just don't want to bother you with my problem. Let it go. Let it go. You feel so much better about yourself. 
Yeah, it really changes everything. That radical honesty, it does. Thank you for coming here and being radically honest with me. I had a lot of fun in this interview and I think we got to touch on some different things that bring different aspects and angles to your story. So I'm so grateful. It's really important to hear a, you know, ex-Marine MMA bodybuilder say, share your feelings, right? Like we need that. I can say it all day long, but if you say it, all those people out there like who have the ego, have the tough, have the the background, they need to hear it. We're all human. We're all human beings. The shell does not reflect what's inside. The more honest we are with everyone, the more people we can help. Some of the hardest, toughest looking people are going through the hardest, toughest things in their life. And they might just need somebody to listen. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you so that your daughter still thinks you're incredibly cool <laughs> on Instagram? Uh, my Instagram page at T-Login, L-O-D-G-E-N. And um, I just became a, a partner with Rockstar Testimony, who's a 501c3. They do mental, mental health and awareness. And you find me on their page at Rockstar Testimony as well. And if you're out there and you need anybody to talk to, if you have any questions, if you want to message me, my DM is completely open. I message everybody and anything, any question that comes through, I will message you back and personally try to help you as much as I can. I totally believe that's what I'm here for. So if anybody needs any help, please just contact me on Instagram at T-Login. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, hello again, Scott and Ashley here. Hi. Hi. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know how I'm supposed to say hi. That's, no. that's just my voice. That's There's my natural obviously voice. a right and wrong way. A right and wrong way to say hi. So Tim was awesome and he's told his story many times, but I felt like we got a different type of angle out of it. But maybe that's just my ego hoping that we got a different angle. You know, I think it's one of those things. Sometimes we have somebody on here and their story is great, but maybe they just haven't gotten to tell it that often. And so they sort of, they almost don't know what the parts that matter and particularly relatable. So like we mentioned to a particular kind of guy too, right? Like Tim is this tough dude. He's, he was an athlete. He was a Marine. He was an MMA fighter. He's uh, he's a carpenter, you know, he's a bodybuilder. He's, you know, tick all these sort of masculine boxes. He's this, he's rad dude realizing like him being able to speak in this really honest way of like, look, man, I am very tough. And, and still like all this came for me. I think it speaks to the person coming out of the military who has seen a lot, has been in this regimented environment schedule, and then they come out and it's just back to supposed to be business as usual for them after living this entirely different life and civilian life can feel so overwhelming to them that so many of them actually do take their lives. I think it's really important that we have this person like Tim talking about what that feels like, how he handled it, and the fact that it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to have feelings. It's okay to ask for help. And if you're struggling with addiction, it's okay to treat that. And that not only is it okay, but it can lead you to this great life. I haven't been in the military, so I can't share that message the way that he can. I have to admit the whole time that he was talking about that part of his story, I was picturing Ashley in the military. Okay, that's like out of here. Yes, and the, yes, the, the, mo the movie wrote itself, right? The movie. G.I. Jane? <laughs> is that what... Is that what the movie is? Yeah, Jane. I was in I the elimination group of, <laughs> of the boot camp day one ringing the bell. So, is that I'm sorry for anybody who likes the show, but we're going to be pouring all of our resources into this project. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the courage to change is going on the road to make a movie about the most defiant, <laughs> unorganized, undisciplined human being. I know that I'm new here. But I have an idea. I'm happy to be in charge of it. And here's the thing that I've noticed is everybody is really running out of energy by the end of the day. And let me tell you what will work really well for that. Cocaine's <laughs> a hell of a drug. <laughs> it isn't the first time that the military has used amphetamines for their soldiers. There's precedent for this, people. There's precedent. This yeah. is, I'm looking at history. That's Ask it. Ask around. Ashley, you know... Um, <laughs> yes, much like the fireball shots that Tim got down with, this is this is gonna burn when it goes oh, down. I mean, I think I'd prefer the burn of the fireball, but hit me with it. Okay, you ready? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs>
<laughs> he can't even look at it. He can't even look at the joke. What did Yoda say when he saw himself in 4K? I don't even have a guess. HDMI. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it burns. It burns. Oh going God. Down. I feel like it just took a sleeve of fireball. <laughs> oh man. <sighs> That was uh, spicy. It's making my, my eyes are watering. They're they are worrying. Oh boy. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> we are we are rooting for you this week. As always, we hope that Tim's story meant something to you. And uh we're so glad that you, you listened to the show. We really, really appreciate it. Really Ashley, appreciate it. Anything you want to leave them with? Grateful for all of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a wonderful week. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.